0: Ahead and be seated, man. What a fun uh, team we got. We got the dueling electric guitarists. I feel like we need to do like "Devil Went Down to Georgia" or something, but not in church. Maybe after church we could do that. So, hey, uh, good to see you here today, man. Uh, can we just give it up for Danielle and her testimony? Um, so awesome. I'm sitting backstage here, and she came out with a huge smile, and she's like, man, that was the most powerful thing ever, and uh, man, it is. When we experience the miracle of life, and every time someone comes to faith, it is a miracle. Uh, when we experience that miracle of faith in our own lives, we are moved, we are changed, and it is powerful. And today, as we uh, be able, are able to experience baptism, one of the things that I would encourage you is if you are a believer and you have not been baptized, that I would encourage you to step into the waters of baptism to share your uh, faith story with the world. That's what baptism is all about. It's, it's symbolic of us dying to ourselves, raising again in the new life that we have. And the reason that we share stories on the screen is so that we can pl- proclaim the stories of the way that God is moving in and through us as individuals and as a church. And so uh, we try to make it pretty easy for you here at Crossroads Church. If you uh, want to get baptized, you can simply text the word NEXT uh, to our text number. You'll see it several times today, but that number is 720 513 And so with all that said, I want to do I do want to welcome all of you joining us online at Crossroads Live, YouTube, Facebook, at Fort Lupton, and here at Thornton. Uh, If you are new with us, man, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today we are in the final week of our first season in the book of Acts. And if you are new for us here, if you're new around here, uh, one of the things that we are in the habit of as we do our preaching and teaching is that we go through uh, topics where we take maybe a topic of the Bible like, uh, or a topic in our lives, or an issue like anger or parenting or money, and we say, what does God have to say about it? And then we build a series around a topic. But we also go through books of the Bible where we take uh, books of the Bible like Acts and we just walk through it, that we believe that there's a value in both looking at the scriptures topically and walking through books of the Bible. Now, Since Acts is such a huge book, uh, we are going to do it in about 35-ish weeks is how long it's going to take us. We've divided it up into like mini-series that we call seasons like on TV show. Very cute, I know. And so uh, this first season, this first season, we have been following the narrative that Luke puts forth uh, to us, the author of the book of Acts. He lays this out in chapters 1 through 8, which really all about the story of watching the gospel message move through the city of Jerusalem. This is where it all began. This is a really big deal. It's really important for us to understand that the reason that it's so important that it started in Jerusalem is not only because Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, the land given to the Hebrew people by God as their chosen ones, as the chosen ones of God, but also because at the center of Jerusalem in the city center was the temple and the temple, the Jerusalem temple for the Jewish person was the center of life. That when we go back into the Old Testament, we see that the Jerusalem temple is where the presence of God dwelt. It was was there. The presence of God was in the temple. And for the Jewish person, it meant that if God's presence was in the middle, that this was the most important place in all the world. And by default, the center of faith. The center of all things related to faith. Well, then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is doing his teaching, and during his teachings, he would sometimes say something like this, that the hour is coming where you won't worship God on this mountain or in Jerusalem. In other words, your worship of God will not be tied to a geographic location, that the presence of God will not be tied here, that you will be able to worship anywhere. And as Jesus began to to proclaim this, The religious leaders, particularly at the temple of Jerusalem, that this didn't sit well with them. That they had become very powerful, very wealthy men because of their work around the temple. And soon, the, the whole thing intensifies where they're standing against Jesus. And eventually, they have Jesus crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. Now, it's important for us to all understand this because Luke's intent, and thus our intent as we're walking through the book of Acts, is to watch the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And here's the cool thing, that we know it made it because we're all sitting here with our Bibles open, ready to experience God today. That the the gospel has made it to the ends of the earth that we are here today, according to Luke in Acts 1-8, because the disciples who received the power of the Holy Spirit went out and they begin to testify, they begin to give witness to the things that they had seen and heard Jesus do. And in doing so, they're sharing the message of the faith and people are believing, the people are believing in this. And the gospel begins to, to spread throughout Jerusalem. And hopefully, if you've been here the last seven weeks as we've done this series, that you're starting to understand that the power that we see the Spirit operate in in these early disciples is the same Spirit that we have in our lives today. And thus, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to continue being the witnesses and the testimony of Jesus as this gospel continues to spread deeper to the ends of the earth. See, you and I, we have this amazing responsibility that has been given to us as believers of Jesus to spread this good news. Which brings us to the theme of Acts because Acts is all about God moving wherever that may be, in the past, in the present, today, into the future, by the Spirit, in his church. That's what the book of Acts is. And so we are in chapter five. We've been through the first five chapters. We're five chapters in, and the disciples, they're all still hanging out in Jerusalem. And today, we're going to walk through together an event that ultimately pushes them past the city walls and into Judea and Samaria. If you were here last week, And then you heard me say that the story that we looked at last week was one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible. If that's true of of that story, then this story today is one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible. That up until this point, we have seen the gospel spread is quite fierce. That at this point, as the disciples are going out and sharing their faith, sharing the good news of Jesus, that most scholars put the gospel at about 30% of Jerusalem's population in just three months. To give you like some perspective of where we live today, if this group was to do that, about 120, 150 of us or so, were to go out and begin to spread the good news of the gospel in three months, we would see about 45,000 people come to know Jesus in Thornton. That's this kind of spread that we're talking about in the early church. It's unbelievable. And while all this is happening, the religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem are watching all this go down, and they're becoming increasingly frustrated and irritated with this movement. They don't believe in Jesus. This movement is threatening their way of life. And so we see this pattern begin to develop and the pattern that begins to develop looks like this, that the disciples go out, they share the good news of the gospel, the religious leaders get irritated, they arrest them, they threaten them, they throw them in jail for a night. Then the disciples get out, they share the message of the gospel, the religious leaders get irritated and frustrated, they arrest them, they threaten them, they throw them in jail for a night. Up until this point, nobody's died, nobody's been killed, nobody's been severely beaten, but all of that changes today. In Acts chapter 6, we meet a man named Stephen, and we pick up his story in chapter 6, verse 8, and here's how it reads. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In Acts chapter six, we meet this man named Stephen. And what we're told about this man named Stephen is that he's a man of good repute. That, he's, that he has a great deal of wisdom and that he's full of the holy spirit. And Stephen is an important guy in our in our story in the story of Acts here because as the church is exploding through Jerusalem, remember thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. That leaders are obviously needed. And so leaders start to rise up and Stephen is one of those leaders and eventually he becomes actually one of the most influential leaders in the early church. And Stephen is this guy who's full of the Holy Spirit, grace, and power. And he's going out into the city circle, and he's, and he's sharing about Jesus and what he's seen and what he's heard. And then he's doing these miracles on, on top of all of that. And as his leadership grows, so do his critics. Critics. And so one day he's out sharing the gospel like he does every day. And this group of Jewish men from the synagogue of freemen, and the reason that Luke says that's what it was called is because that was like the street name. Like the synagogue was actually made up somewhere in the history of men and women who were of the Jewish faith who were freed from the captivity. And they started a synagogue and they named it the synagogue of freemen, right? And so these guys are looking to pick a fight with a Jesus follower. And so they happen to come upon Stephen as he's doing these miracles and he's sharing this faith, and they start mocking him for his faith. They start, they start mocking him for his belief in Jesus. They start bringing questions that aren't like questions of curiosity to him, but actually belligerent questions trying to trap him. And at every moment, Luke tells us that Stephen is able to put those away, and he's able to turn all of this on them, and he's able to show the glory of God through it. Well, the freeman's getting frustrated. They step up their game, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That as this whole scene begins to fill with tension, the freedmen start to accuse him of speaking against the temple and against Moses. Well, none of this is true, but if you feel threatened by this movement and you want it stopped, the best way to rile the crowd is to threaten the temple. Remember, the temple is is the center of life. The temple is where God's presence is. To threaten the temple is to threaten God himself and then throw Moses, the great prophet of Israel, on top. And you've got a dumpster fire, all right? And so as this dumpster fire is raging, these fake accusations start being thrown at Stephen and they're being shared by the Freemans in secret, instigating men who are accusing him of these trumped-up charges. And so this gets the entire crowd in this frenzy, And everybody's freaking out, and everybody starts pushing in against Stephen, and all of a sudden, the Jewish religious cops show up, they throw handcuffs on Stephen, and they drag him away to the courts, the religious courts, to be tried. And in a moment, Stephen's gonna have the opportunity to address his accusers, but before he does, Luke gives us this interesting commentary in verse 15. It says, and as they were gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel that one of the problems when we read the scriptures for us is the common imagery that we have been taught when it comes to images that we see in the scriptures. For many of us, when it comes to a picture of an angel, it might look a little bit like this, that they are sweet kind of cherubic creatures that seek to bring cuteness into every room that they enter into, right? They're they're floating on wings as a chubby figure with bow and arrows and they fire love into people's hearts and rainbows and kittens, they explode everywhere. Like that's the way that the world sees angels, but that's not the biblical imagery of an angel, that angels were messengers of God and they inspired awe and fear. Like every time an angel shows up in the Bible, the first words that follow are this, fear not. Why? Because they were terrifying. Like their whole being, their whole being was to be messengers of the one true God. And for Luke to picture Stephen's face as the face of an angel isn't to say that everybody in the courts were mesmerized by his cuteness. That's not what's going on here. Stephen's face, as Luke describes it, as an angel, is a picture of his determination to speak God's word fearlessly, faithfully, and forcefully. That's what's going on here. That Stephen is not going to cower from this moment, that he's being filled with the power of the Spirit to speak the truth of Jesus, to proclaim the message of his Savior. It is a beautiful compliment by Luke to call Stephen's face the face of an angel. May we all have the face of an angel. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest looks at Stephen and he says, are these things so? He goes, Stephen, are these accusations that they're making before you, are they true Now, we have to remember in this moment that the high priest is a guy named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the dude who led the crucifixion of Jesus not three months earlier. Caiaphas is the guy who's already threatened Peter and John for sharing the testimony of the faith. That Caiaphas, at this point in Israel's history, is the most influential and powerful man in Israel. That nobody has more power. And nobody has more to lose if the temple is removed as the center of relationship for God than Caiaphas. For Caiaphas being in the courts on this day means that Stephen is in big time trouble, big time trouble. And so in the middle of this courtroom drama, Stephen begins to answer Caiaphas and and all the leaders and he does so with such brilliance. He begins to take the salvation story of Israel, this grand narrative that we find in the Old Testament, and he begins to show them that the story that they're living out is actually the wrong story. That the Hebrew people got the story wrong. That they got their own story wrong. And he looks at him and he says, look, that you have rejected every messenger that God has ever sent to you. He goes, here's my summary of where you're sitting. Verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. He says, which one of the, uh, as your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Go ahead, name a name. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And when the righteous one did show up, you betrayed him and you murdered him. And you have received the laws delivered by the angels, and you did not keep it. Stephen says, come on, boys. Let's just talk this through. Let's start at the beginning. Moses, who you're all high and mighty about, your fathers, they rejected him. The other prophets, persecuted. The righteous one shows up, you crucify him. And now, as disciples, you threaten. He goes, Let's just let's look at your story and the history of your story, that you were the chosen ones of God, that you were the ones, that you were the ones who were supposed to get this, that you were supposed to be different, you were supposed to show the world what it looked like to worship Yahweh. I mean, this is so familiar to me of the scene in *Revenge of the Sith*. Star Wars fans, right? Like where Anakin and Obi Wan they're like lightsabering it out at the end, and Anakin looks at Obi uh, or Obi Wan looks at Anakin and says, "You were the Chosen One." right? Like you were supposed to defeat the Sith, not join them. You were supposed to bring Browns to the force, not leave the world in darkness. Like Anakin, you're my brother. I love you. I mean, George Lucas lifted that right out of the pages of scripture. Stephen is looking at the Jewish leaders and going, God chose you. That you were meant to bring glory into this world, not to join Satan in it. That you were supposed to be light, not leave the world in darkness. This Hebrew blood that runs through me is the same Hebrew blood that runs through you. I love you. Repent of this. I mean, the scene is so intense. And yet in the intensity of the drama, don't miss the message for us. Because what Stephen was saying to Caiaphas and the religious leaders on that day is as relevant to us today. And here's what he was getting at. The story that you're living, the story that you're living, regardless of whatever you're living for, the story that you are living for is incomplete and therefore misshaped if Jesus is not at the center of it. That the story that you're living is misshaped and therefore incomplete if Jesus is not at the center of it. It was true for Caiaphas, it was true of all in the courts that day, and it's true of you and me today. And listen, it does not matter how religious or irreligious our story is. If Jesus is not at the center, then our story is misshaped and therefore incomplete. One of the most sobering things about this story is that Caiaphas and his leaders were living extremely religious stories, and yet they were wrong. They were incomplete because Jesus wasn't at the center. It's why years later, the author of the Hebrews letter in our Bibles would write these. He writes, stir one another up for good works and into love, and don't neglect meeting together like some of you are, but gather together to encourage the body that this is the normative picture of the Christian life, that as believers come together, that we're encouraging each other in in ways that are are speaking to Jesus being the center of our lives, that when we gather together for meals, when we meet this fall in community groups, when we meet each other in King Supers, all of that is meant as believers, is that when we gather together, that we encourage each other to make Jesus the center of our story, the center of our stories. And so the question becomes for me and you this, is Jesus at the center of your story? I mean, CEOs and, and business owners, is, is Jesus at the center of your story? Amazon workers, you your stacking boxes on trucks, is, is Jesus the center of your story? Artists and musicians and salesmen, Are is Jesus the center of your story? Empty nesters, parents, kids, is Jesus the center of your story? Listen, men, Jesus should dominate your story. And if Jesus isn't at the center of your story, then it is an incomplete story that you are, you are living your life out wrong, at least according to Stephen, according to the Bible. So Stephen is standing before the court, he's giving this brilliant defense, and he actually flips the scripts on his accusers, and he starts accusing them of the things that he was accused of. He looks at them and says, look, you missed the intent of God's plan here. You missed the intent of God's plan. That you're the one who, who, because of the way that you're living, is destroying the temple. That you have disobeyed the law. That you've changed the message of Moses and you've killed Jesus. It's you, not me, who's rejected God. Repent. Now, that went over about as well as you would imagine. And this time, there's no more threats, there's no more prison. Verse 54 tells us what happens. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That Stephen's passionate plea, walking them through history, did not humble them. It did not soften their hearts. It only hardened their hearts to reject him and God even further. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Spirit, gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is so specific, it cannot be coincidental as Luke writes this. Remember, Luke is the writer of Acts, and he wrote a previous volume that we call Luke. And in that book, or that volume, he's telling the story of Jesus. And when he's recounting the trial of Jesus, before Jesus goes to be crucified, as he's recounting that trial, he quotes Jesus saying that when you see me again, I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, in monarchy language, in in kingdom language, to sit at the right hand was the place of authority, dominion, power. And so Stephen, in this moment, as the crowd is being enraged, he looks to the heaven for help. And what does he see open in heaven is that Jesus is sitting next to the Father, to the right of the Father in the place of power and authority just like he said he would be. That it's an encouragement to Stephen that no matter what's being happening in this world that Jesus is still in charge. That no matter what hardship he finds himself that Jesus is the authority and that he will make all things right and with that confidence he can have courage as he moves forward in the power of the spirits. And as he does... And as he does, this is great comfort for Stephen and for the religious leaders, great judgment. Verse 57, and they crowd out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments, not at Stephen's feet, but at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they did this, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is one of the most disturbing verses in all of the scripture. A mob so enraged dragged Stephen, who just hours earlier was proclaiming the message of Jesus and performing great signs and wonders full of grace and mercy. They drag him to court so enraged and they start throwing rocks at his head and his torso until he dies this brutal death. This is the turning point. From this point forward, the Jerusalem temple will no longer be the center of what God is doing in the worlds. Nor is it the place where God is most present in the world's. That his holy temple is no longer a building, but as we saw last week, his holy temple is those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that wherever we gather, which is called the local church, that we become the body of Christ to bring about that message in the world. And so on this day, persecution breaks out in the church, first with Stephen and then throughout the city. And as believers are running for their lives as they run to to new places to live, with them goes the story of Jesus. They cannot stop speaking about what they've seen and heard Jesus do and say. And as they run, so the gospel spreads to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And that is where we'll pick up season two. But before we leave Jerusalem, I just want us to ponder Stephen's life for a moment and what it means for our story. See, we can look at we can look at the story of Stephen and we can ask the question, what would my response be, what would my response be if I, if I was ever in a place where persecution and, and death was before me because of my faith? And it's such an easy question to ask, isn't it? See, the takeaway when we we look at that, is that anybody of faith should ask that question. I mean, we would be wise and responsible to, to ask a question like that. What would my response be if I ever faced persecution or death because of my faith? And while that is a good question... While the story of Stephen is inspiring, and as excited as we get as we watch this hero and we celebrate his faithfulness and God's faithfulness as we, as we should, that question's probably not the best question. Because in America, despite the doomsayers, our lives are relatively free of persecution, aren't they? Like, I mean, even on our worst days, the persecution that we face is nowhere near what brothers and sisters in Christ face all over the world. And while we may face a little bit of hardship and maybe some insults because of what we believe, I highly doubt that anybody showed up to church today thinking that when they go at home, this may be their last day because they're gonna be murdered for their faith. It's just not the culture we live in. At least not now. And so the better question for us to ask is not what does it look like to die for my faith, but what does it actually look like to live out my faith? Not what does it mean to die for my faith but but what does it look like to live out my faith see the takeaway of Stephen's story is that there's one true story there's one lord there is one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin and there is one hope and his name is Jesus the hero of the story is Jesus everything that happened to Stephen first was experienced by Jesus Trumped up charges, kangaroo court, sham trial, sentenced to death, a prayer of forgiveness for his murderers before he died, that Stephen was simply following the example of his Savior. It's Jesus' death that changes everything for us. The final words of Stephen, that this story, your story, whatever story you're living in, is incomplete if Jesus isn't at at the center, that when we submit our lives to Jesus and the power of the Spirit rolls over us, everything changes. I mean, that's what happened with Danielle's story, isn't it? Did you catch it when she spoke about the Spirit coming on to her and all that she wanted to do was go about and share about what God had done in her life so that others could experience the grace and mercy that she experienced? I mean, you would think that that kind of offer would be one that's readily accepted, But many people don't. Like the religious leaders of of Stephen's time, they were threatened by the gospel and its claims in their lives. And maybe that's something that you need to ask yourself, like, am I threatened by the claims of Jesus? Am I threatened by the claims of Jesus in my life? If so, there's a good reason for that. For the Jews, the temple was was the center of their existence. And the gospel said that, that they were putting their trust in the wrong Thing. If I was to ask you, what's your version of the temple in your life? Is it money, power, status, relationships? Like, what's, what's the temple in the center of your life? See, the gospel can feel threatening, whether you're a super spiritual person or, or not one at all, that if you choose to follow Jesus, he will replace whatever is at the center of of your life. And in doing so, he will rightly shape your life. And that can feel totally intimidating. See, as we leave Jerusalem today, what I want us to hear is the pleads of Stephen, where he looks at Caiaphas and says, Caiaphas, don't harden your heart here. Like, like God is moving. Don't reject what you're seeing. Like put your faith in Jesus, trust in him, repent and believe. And if you do, you'll be amazed at what happens to whatever you thought should be in the center of your life. That's the takeaway of today's story. So would you bow with me and pray before we go to communion together? Father, we know that your presence is here. And and Lord, as, as a group of believers, a body of believers, Lord, we know that your spirit is at work in us. And so, Father, I pray today that we would have the face of an angel Lord, that we would fearlessly and faithfully take your message into the world. And Lord, that we know that when trouble or hardship comes upon us, Lord, if persecution ever makes it in a real way to where we are at, God, I pray that we would have the courage, the courage, Lord, to continue to speak of what you've seen and what we've heard. And Lord, as you transform lives, God, I pray that we would that we would never take your work for granted, but, Lord, that we would see it as a miracle. And, Lord, that in those miracles that we would be inspired to continue to go out and to share with people so that they could experience the love, the grace, the mercy that we've experienced with you. And so today, Lord, I pray for those who maybe are intimidated by the claims of Jesus. Lord, who feel threatened like the religious leaders here. Lord, that as you speak to their hearts, that they would begin to understand that there's one Lord, one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, one hope, and that's you, Jesus. Speak them today. Lord, for those who are are living religious stories, but don't have you at the center, God, I pray that there would be great conviction that comes over them now, not for them to feel shame, but Lord, for them to feel hope. And so Lord, I pray that you would walk with us, Lord, in mercy as we figure this out together. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his life. Thank you for the confidence that he's there with you today, singing your praises. And uh, Lord, may that be us one day too. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. If today, if God is moving in your hearts, I would just encourage you to text the word Jesus to our number, 720-513-1933. We'd love to have the conversation of whatever questions that you may have that comes with knowing Jesus. Today we celebrate communion and it really is a celebration. That is because of Jesus' body being broken and his blood being spilled out that we have forgiveness of sins. It was this moment in history that enabled Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father in dominion and power, no matter what we face in this world, that we can have confidence that God will make all things right. And so today we celebrate the movement of God in our lives by eating the bread together. By drinking from the cup, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And so today, if you need prayer, I'd encourage you to uh, online, click the button. Well, if someone to pray for you in house, you can make your way over the banner. We'll pray, but I'm going to ask you to sit, stand as we celebrate together the way that our Savior lives.